Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohan and Kishore, a show in which we analyze happenings from around the world and their impact on India. Before we begin, we have a programming note to share. We had been receiving multiple requests from our listeners to make our episodes available on podcasts, apps. We have heard you and we are now present there as well. Starting today, you can listen to all new episodes on SoundCloud and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. That's not all. You can listen to all our earlier episodes too in those platforms. Remember that we will continue to be present in YouTube as well. In today's episode, we will be talking about the Pulwama terror attack on the 14th of February, a convoy of vehicles carrying security personnel on the Jammu Srinagar National Highway was attacked by a vehicle bone suicide bomber at Lethpura near Avantipura in the Pulwama district of Jammu and Kashmir, India. The attack resulted in the death of 40 Central Reserve Police Force, also known as CRPF personnel, which is a paramilitary force, and also the attacker. The responsibility for the attack was claimed by the Pakistan-based Islamist militant group Jaisy Muhammad. A local youth named Adil Ahmad Dar was identified as the attacker. Before we go into the attack itself, we need to understand the context in which this attack took place. There has been a public opinion that terror activities have come down in the country in the past three years due to various factors like better surveillance, improved national security, uh, hot pursuit policy adopted to nullify the terror networks in the state of Jammu and Kashmir and many other such factors. This has now resulted in changed tactics by the terror organizations where they have been seen carrying out high-profile fidaing attacks. This was a phenomenon seen in Afghanistan, uh, Syria, and to an extent in Pakistan also, but sadly it has now entered India. Some of the high-profile fidaing attacks in the recent past include attack on a bus and police station in Gurdaspur in Punjab in July 2015, attack on Pathan Court airbase in January 2016, by Jaisya Mohammed, uh, attack on CRPF convoy by near Pampur in uh, June 2016, attack on Indian Army Brigade headquarters in Uri near the line of control in September 2016, attack on Indian Army base in Nagrota, Jammu and Kashmir in November 2016, and now the attack on the CRPF convoy near Pulwama in uh, in, the Feb- in February 2019. Now, before we get into the details of the attack itself, it is essential to talk about Jaisya Muhammad. Security officials have always warned 
that the Jaish is the deadliest terror group in the valley and poses the highest threat due to the kind of attacks it can carry out. Ironically, this group has grown leaps and bounds over the past couple of years. From being dormant, the Jaish has become the most dreaded, dreaded group in the valley over the years. Currently, the Jaish has a terrorist strength of over uh, 60 in the valley. It has also created suicide and sniper squads. The security forces say that while the Hezbollah Mujahideen and Lashkar Toiba have, have been dented largely, the Jaish, on the other hand, has become deadlier. The terror group did not have a single terrorist in the valley in 2016. However, in the past three years, it has managed to grow in terms of strength and numbers. The Jaish, headed by Maulana Masood Azhar, was founded in 2000. However, after making a deadly start in the valley, it had become dormant for a long, long time. It was since the Patan court attack that we have begun to witness uh, that the group has been raising its ugly head once again. Now, what makes the Jaish so lethal? First and foremost, these terrorists are highly trained and have state-of-the-art weapons. The M4 carbine was first brought into the valley by this group. The other factor is that the group puts in place a plan before staging an attack. It undergoes the entire process of recruitment, training, reconnaissance, and then carries out an attack. The Hezbollah Mujahideen, on the other hand, shows its dominance through its numbers. Most of their terrorists are untrained and do not have powerful weapons. The recent plea by Hezbollah Mujahideen commander through a video message complaining about the lack of weapons or outdated ones is a clear indicator of what the strength of the outfit is. Be that as it may, uh, coming back to Jaish, Jaish is a group that, uh, that is a deep asset for the Pakistani establishment. Uh, Jaish prefers Pakistani attackers as they are more rigorously trained and then these people are launched across the line of control. Now Jaish Muhammad chief Masood Azhar had sent two of his nephews to Kashmir last year and, these, and both of them were eliminated by the Indian security forces late last year. Azhar in a tribute to his nephew and other terrorists that were killed uh, asked the common Kashmiris to join in. Intelligence inputs suggested that an Afghan war veteran was sent to the valley to carry out revenge attacks against the security forces. Pakistani terrorist Abdul Rashid Ghazi, who is an IED expert, improvised explosive device expert, crossed over last December. Ghazi has been handpicked by Jaisa Muhammad Chief Masood Azhar to avenge the killing of his nephews and to train local recruits. Now let's look at the attack itself. Mohal, if you can uh, pitch in here and if you can explain the manner in which the attack was carried out. Yeah, so um, what was uh, what had happened a few days prior is that uh, there was a, a backlog of uh, CRPF Jawans who were traveling to their uh, final camps and they were in transit. So due to snowfall on a few early days, there was already a long ba 
backlog and there was an unusually long convoy of 78 vehicles traveling from Jammu to Srinagar which uh, presents like a huge uh, target for anyone who would want to attack. Now, uh, there are questions being asked that could the attack not have been prevented uh, due to the movement of civilians in the convoy was passing. So what happened is uh, uh, the terrorist, uh, he had a vehicle loaded with uh, 100 to 100 and I mean, it's reported is going to be, it's supposed to be 100 to 150 kgs of RDX, which is a no, no mean feat because to procure that kind of uh, volume of RDX means that there has to be some uh, serious uh, uh, intelligence failure uh, on India's part. So they uh, procured uh, the 100 to 150 kilograms of RDX, put it in a vehicle and uh, what we call it is a VBIED, like a vehicle bone uh, IED attack they uh, he hit one of the buses calling the crpf jawans who unfortunately then uh, passed away due to the sheer blast of this uh, huge ied now this mind you this has to be a meticulously planned operation because the the terrorists lay in wait on one of the slip roads uh, on the highway between jammu and srinagar and uh, targeted the buses as they were passing usually it's a extremely uh, long convoy because the convoy is usually 10 to 15 vehicles but this was uh, uncharacteristically long um, and i mean in theory the security forces are supposed to comb and clean up the operation but this was missed so this would be something that we we'll discuss in the coming days how to secure the convoy i think there's already been some talk about not allowing civilian traffic anymore when the convoys pass. So, I mean, yeah. this is a very meticulously planned operation in detail because one, you have to procure 100 to 150 kgs of RDX. I mean, the theory right now is most probably it was stolen or uh, somebody was given bribes to take it away from like Indian security forces. I mean, it's possible, but unlikely that somebody carried it over all the way from Pakistan into India. Uh, Next, someone has to do recce and gather all the information about the target. They have to exact information when the convoy would be passing through that particular area. Uh, you would need uh, uh, somebody with expertise to set up such a huge ID of 100 to 150 kgs. You need to procure detonators. You need to assemble the the, uh, the bomb itself. So this is no mean feat. And uh, uh, it will be interesting to see what India takes countermeasures in the future to prevent any uh, issues with it. Now, like Jaisa Mohammed uh, immediately, I believe uh, Kishore uh, took responsibility for this attack. So there is no doubts where the attack came from. As for the planners, uh, Indian security officials, as per some news reports are zeroing on uh, Maulana Masood Azhar's elder brother Ibrahim as the key planner behind the bomb attack. Uh, they believe that this was an attack after uh, his son was killed by Indian security forces in October. Uh, incidentally, uh, Ibrahim was also a lead hijacker on the IC-814 flight, which was uh, kidnapped to Kandahar. And then uh, India had to release Masood Azhar and few, a couple other terrorists to secure that release.
now <clears throat> coming to the security aspect uh, i mean this is a worrying trend which many analysts had forecasted some time ago now what we have seen up till this attack is there have been innumerable suicide missions or what is referred as fidain attacks uh, but not suicide attacks with vehicles i mean the mumbai was a prime example because it would be the uh, most fresh in every, i mean not fresh but uh, most visible in everybody's memory where a huge bunch of attackers uh, uh, i mean they were willing to die and inflict as much damage as possible so uh the vehicle bone id is something new to uh, india i mean in kashmir they did have a vehicle bone suicide attack where it was uh, almost two decades ago outside the main gate of a cantonment in shrinagar now we have seen like in the news and in videos online that there have been a spate of spate of uh, vehicle bone id attacks against military forces in afghanistan iraq and syria now unfortunately this menace has reached our doorstep and this could be the route used by terrorists going forward to create more uh, mayhem and destruction in the coming days and indian security forces or security establishment will have to develop more countermeasures to prevent uh, vehicle bone id attacks which can be devastating due to the sheer amount of explosives one can pack in a, a any vehicle at a time <clears throat> and especially and especially in a situation when you do not know how much more rdx do these uh, terror groups uh, have with them so yeah i think here the in- intelligence cooperation with the us will be useful because they have been born they have burned the the burned the uh, what you call the the attacks from these ieds both in afghanistan and uh, iraq yes so they would have a lot of experience on how to combat these uh, id attacks other vehicle yeah. bone id attacks suicide bombers right, right. but in addition uh, the challenge for the indian security agency is to make sure that they confiscate the rdx even before it is used in any such uh, uh, attempts later on yeah so, i think there will uh, be yeah. i think there will be new procedures on how to handle rdx and explosives for sure so the yeah, main exactly. challenge in my opinion is not the rdx i mean they will tighten down things i mean they, but you can still have use like uh, homemade chemicals like uh, fertilizers to make uh, uh, big bombs the challenge would be when vehicle the vehicles how do you scan them how do you prevent uh, them getting through to create such a destruction in the future right right so uh, moving on can you walk us through what happens next yeah so i mean as a, a former brigadier gurmit kanwal wrote in a piece after this attacks then i quote there is a time for restraint and there is a time for action this is a time for action and not restraint so i mean there has been a lot of discussion in social media through tv newspaper electronic media about the wide range of options on what india should do next now the responses have varied vastly depending on the person you ask or his individual perspective i mean there have been on one side the sort of the aman ki asha gang who say that india shouldn't take any military action as violence is not the solution to violence and like we should talk more to pakistan while on the other end we have the other extreme people who are advocating like bombing pakistan back to the stone age or wiping them off the face of the earth 
including the use of nuclear weapons now mind you like i mean in my opinion i don't think both of these options would be the correct response here um i think there are like many options in between i mean the main challenge we have faced over the past two decades is uh, see like since Pokhran too, when India went overtly nuclear and Pakistan in a couple of weeks uh, went nuclear. Now, Pakistan has always been using the nuclear card to prevent any massive retaliation by India after such events. Now, we did have the 1999 Kargil war when both nations were overtly nuclear and did fight a war. But in that case, we were evicting Pakistani soldiers who had encroached on uh, over the LOC into uh, our areas. Now, after the, but on the other hand, you can also take the 2611 attacks in Mumbai in 2008, when there was a real possibility of India doing something in response. When we saw the familiar saber rattling by the Pakistanis uh, to discourage us from doing anything militarily. I mean, they usually say, okay, if you cross the international border, we will use our tactical nuclear weapons or we will use our nuclear weapons. So for the last decades, I mean, we have been and that's a hamstrung to a certain extent as to what options we could use. I mean, and this is the while they continue with their asymmetric warfare on terrorism in Kashmir and uh, rest of India and bleed India by the proverbial thousand cuts. I mean, <clears throat> uh, the fear is that any military operation by India across the international border or LOC will provoke a response from Pakistan, which then provokes a bigger response from India, which then provokes a bigger response from Pakistan and so on and so forth till the stage it reaches where nuclear weapons uh, used by Pakistan is likely. I mean, we do have a no first use policy, but like Pakistan, because of the, I mean, Pakistan doesn't have the conventional edge over us in any way, shape or form. So like they uh, use the nuclear uh, blanket as an insurance against any Indian uh, attack. I mean, the the Indian strategy has never been to like totally run over Pakistan, occupy everything, but make shallow thrusts across the international border and line of control, like something, I mean, vaguely referred as cold start. I mean, I won't go into the details here, but Pakistan has always said, if you cross the border, then we're going to use nuclear weapons on, uh, on your security forces. So this has always been a kind of a challenge on how do you respond militarily but uh, not uh, the situation go in such a way that the nuclear weapons uh, release is uh, authorized by the Pakistanis. Now, so coming to present day, I mean, what the surgical strike showed that between these two binary levels that we talk about, where you do nothing in response, I mean, the, in addition to the usual condemnation and trying to isolate Pakistan on the international stage, blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, the other binary is, okay, uh, things escalate out of hand. So the use of nuclear weapon exists. Uh, there, ha there are many options in between. I mean, it doesn't mean that anytime you take action, we automatically climb what is called in uh, strategic... Uh, military uh, parlance as the escalatory ladder like where you do one thing he does one thing then you go do something more then he does something more and in the end it always ends up in nuclear mayhem so what the surgical strike showed that there exists a calibrated response in between these two binaries of not doing anything and uh, resulting in and everything resulting into nuclear action now 
the the scale of attack compared to the uri attacks in 2016 is much larger now a long drawn out war with pakistan is not in india's interest as it would lead to um, a lot of international pressure plus putting india's military and financial resources under enormous strain the challenge today is to deliver a blow which basically you are threading the needle of not climbing the escalatory ladder short of breaking out into full war while also the response has to be above a level where pakistan thinks twice or thinks harder about its asymmetric war against us now i mean we are under no illusion that any response might not end pakistan's uh, support for terrorism but at least it, they need to be uh, thinking harder that should we be doing this because there is a chance that we india will hit back hard at us so this is the challenge while not giving a too tepid response uh, but also not doing such a high response that it leads to all out war now there have been like some reports that it will be a short and sustained campaign let's say like a 48 to 72 hour campaign at inflicting devastating damage or like they say as they say disproportionately devastating damage on the pakistani deep state now for obvious national security reasons i mean i have been privy to some of these discussions uh, but i would go as to like what are the various options uh, um, in front of india because of the security implications but many reporters have already published a uh, few details in the newspapers i know there is one with uh, manu pabbi in i believe the economic times right i forget like which newspaper he works with mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so where mentions like there could be like 150 fighters and with all kinds of fighters across the board like with uh, our missile uh, regiments with uh, special forces doing like uh, i wouldn't say like surgical side but covert ops behind enemy lines uh, i mean the artillery barrages i mean mind you a lot of what gets published many times is part of psych ops or what's referred as psychological war I mean, this is to basically misdirect the enemy on what's actually coming or scare the living daylights out of him with an aim to influence his behavior that, you know, he might just get scared and run away from the fight when the first punch is landed. Now, also unlike Uri, when the Pakistan was caught unguarded because they always thought, you know what, India doesn't do anything, you know, nothing to be done, you know, they this time they won't be caught unguarded. I mean as per reports they are already on the highest possible alerts on the eastern border with india and they fear the wrath of indian armed forces falling on them soon so they will be like i mean all the security forces deployed all that probably command and control infrastructure is in place all the radars are on high alert all the security forces so they know that we are coming now if this all wasn't complicated enough on february 13th a day before the attack in india there was a uh, attack on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which I believe are the elite uh, forces of the uh, Iranian Armed Forces. Now, interestingly, Iran has blamed the the place the blame on the terrorists who were trained in Pakistan. And as per some reports, Iran is raiding for an attack on terrorist camps inside Balochistan. Now, this creates a interesting angle because normally, with any major threat from India. Uh, Pakistan would line up most of the resources uh, along the eastern border with India. Now, if you have another potential threat on the western border with uh, Pakistan, 
they would have to spread their forces on both sides because they just kind of like put all their eggs in one basket, as we say. Now, uh, curiously, our external affairs minister, Sushma Swaraj, made an unscheduled stop in Tehran on Saturday, where she met the deputy foreign minister to discuss the attacks on both the countries. Now, there has been some unconfirmed talk of joint action by Iran and India against uh, a common problem, which is Pakistan. But I mean, it could be far-fetched. I mean, there could be joint action. Who knows? I mean, it could very well be another, as I said, part of the psychops against Pakistan military who would be probably crapping in their pants knowing that uh, they would be a double whammy coming from two sides. Now, and on, uh, I mean, in India, we talk a lot about uh, the two front war, which is basically a war which simultaneously with Pakistan and China. But I mean, it's ironic that uh, it could be the Pakistanis who could bear the brunt of a two front attack in the next coming days. So, I mean, and on top of that, like Pakistan also did a uh, ID explosion, I believe in uh, Afghanistan on the 16th, which makes that uh, they attacked India on uh, sorry uh, Iran on the 13th India on the 14th and Afghanistan on the 16th which makes for an uh, astounding three ID attacks in three nations over span of four days which means that I don't know what's going on in the in Rawalpindi but I'm not sure if they are thinking this through from their perspective because they could be on the receiving end on multiple fronts now So, uh, Kishore, now, if all this wasn't complex enough, we also have the arrival of the Saudi Crown Prince uh, MBS in Islamabad today and then later on in India. How does this uh, complicate matters further in an already fluid and complex situation? <laughs> right. So, <clears throat> as, you, as you rightly pointed out, uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is on a scheduled uh, to travel to Pakistan. Uh, now, mind you, uh, his visit uh, was supposed to happen on uh, on uh, Saturday, but it's kind of postponed, and he has just now arrived as we are recording this uh, episode. So, uh, the whole intention of uh, uh, MBS's visit to Pakistan was to shore up the Pakistani economy, which is already in the uh, doldrums, and there was a there was a a planned investment uh, summit where uh, uh, Saudi would open up its purse uh, to sell out uh, something like $8 billion worth of capital for mm -hmm. various infrastructure projects. Now, mm -hmm. as I told you, the visit itself got delayed. And uh, again, uh, as, as we record the episode, now we are also hearing about the investment summit itself being cancelled. Now, uh, until until MBS is in uh, Islamabad or in Rawalpindi uh, and uh, in Pakistan itself, uh, it would it would become quite uh, messy for India to uh, calibrate any response over Pakistan, simply because uh, MBS is no 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 smaller uh, global figure, and uh, the very fact that he is uh, scheduled to come to India right from Pakistan uh, in itself would uh, kind of give him a very bad welcome. So uh, probably India would wait until uh, MBS uh, gets out of Pakistan. But even then, uh, plan, uh, uh, India would not, India would not uh, get uh, hurried up just because MBS uh, is in Pakistan or, or is in India. I mean, it would be great if India can provide a ringside view to MBS 
for any kind of uh, <laughs> short action <laughs> but yeah. uh, i mean the that's why that's why i joked on the uh, i think uh, facebook and twitter that i said like you know pakistanis would be using mbs as a shield because it's unlikely india launches any action when is in pakistan so as i said i was joking that you know pakistanis would be telling like in you know, mbs sab like kuch din aur guzariye pakistan islamabad exactly yeah. stay back stay back <laughs> we will we'll give you nishane pakistan and much more थोड़े और दिन रुक जाइए आई मीन यू नो आई मीन हमारी फटी पड़ी है यहाँ तो आई मीन द सेम थिंग विथ इंडिया आई थिंक इवन वेन इज इन इंडिया एग्जैक्टली आई थिंक यू मेड अ वेरी ग्रेट वेरी गुड पॉइंट दैट आई थिंक ऑल द फायर वर्कस वुड प्रॉब्ली हैपन आफ्टर ही लीव इंडिया इंडिया माइट बी यूजिंग द डिप्लोमैटिक चैनल विद एम बी एस टू कन्वे देर कंसर्न एंड दैट लाइक यू नो पाकिस्तान नीड्स टू बी Uh, given a befitting response to this uh, uh, big terrorist attack and also it also allows indian some more time to prepare because as you remember like the uri i believe the attacks happened on 16th and then the actual attacks happened on 29th so it's 11 days so you need some time to move your forces in position whichever branch of the armed forces it be air force navy or i mean our strategic i won't think strategic forces command because it's nuclear but air force navy and army to the right positions to take action so it gives us more time helps us uh, also convey our concerns to mbs who has been a big patron of pakistan now i had a question for you uh, on this 8 billion worth of in- infrastructure now uh, kishore uh, i think i read recently that the forex reserves are down to what some sort 8 billion so this 8 billion investment it won't help them pay for their exports and st- imports and stuff right so Uh, is it a direct infusion to reduce their debt or have, uh, the forex reserves or it will be just future infrastructure projects um, they have they have just mentioned that this is for future infrastructure projects but uh, uh, given the situation that pakistan uh, find itself in i would not be surprised if they use this money up for uh, paying the salaries of their government servants Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you never know. But then, but then, on paper, officially, though, uh, these are for uh, infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, again, uh, yeah, uh, just another point is that uh, Pakistan continues to engage uh, IMF for a bailout, which uh, doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be happening for a long time now. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah any any money that is coming in during the meanwhile is a welcome addition for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. another question now we i talked a lot on the military angle now can you talk us about various other dimensions in which india respond to i mean there is more than a uh, military angle i see a full spectrum response and i don't talk about military because some people might interpret it that way but i mean like other domains like uh, statecraft and uh, diplomacy exactly. so can you please elaborate on that one sure sure so uh, military is just one uh, one dimension in all this now uh, as you mentioned that sushma uh, swaraj minister of external affairs uh, was in tehran she was actually on a stopover in tehran while on her way to belgium mind mm-hmm. you belgium uh, uh, brussels uh, is the uh, capital for european union so there would be hectic lobbying and hectic uh, convention going on uh, mm-hmm. um, on the part of india uh, trying to uh, pull uh, eu onto their side indicating that we are going to we are going to punish pakistan and you better mm-hmm. you better uh, support us in this mm-hmm. uh, mission 
Now that was one aspect and the other one being that uh, uh, Bolton, the National Security Advisor of the mm -hmm. United States called up uh, Ajit Doval, uh, Indian National Security Advisor, uh, expressed uh, sympathies and also clearly indicated that uh, US uh, agreed and was of the opinion that India was well within its right to exercise uh, uh, any any proportionate or disproportionate response when mm -hmm. it comes to uh, when it comes to self defense so yeah. uh, in that sense uh, across the world uh, major powers are being uh, taken into confidence either through phone calls or through direct one on one uh, visits including mm -hmm. uh, iran as such in the form uh, of on the Sorry to interrupt you, but one thing I think I read, and I don't know if I'm reading between the lines, I mean, they were, uh, so of course, I mean, I don't foresee like US taking action against Pakistan, like military action, but I think if I read between the lines, I got sort of the impression that maybe US was willing to share actionable intelligence with India, but I mean, I could be wrong. So that could be one angle with the increase Indian See, like this is now where all the Indian diplomacy over the past exactly. few years comes yeah. into yeah. comes into picture. Like stronger relations with, so you can get more condemnation. I mean, the U.S. statement was pretty strong if you think of it. And, and compared to the Russian and, statement, it's like and stronger. named uh, Pakistan as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, uh, I saw some reports. Sorry to interrupt you again. That the State Department or. Uh, wrote up a statement which was kind of uh, not as strong and then Bolton rewrote it as the other way around like do you did you see that I, I think I don't know if no, I, I did not see that so I anyways the, the the diplomacy over the past few years now comes into picture now the growing closeness with US I know like some in India are not too happy but I mean if now this is a big if if US can share actionable intelligence with India, which can help like target because I mean, see the main thing in all this uh, military action is you need good intelligence. You can't just go and hit the wrong place and the consequences could be fatal or very bad. Like it could Pakistan could portray them as a the victim then. So if you get good intelligence from the Uncle Sam, then like that helps uh, India's cause a lot. So that would be like some of the other aspect in here. I mean, sorry, go on. Like I interrupted. You right. So yeah, that was with regards to uh, the geopolitical dimension. Uh, mm -hmm. Mind you, uh, China continues to play uh, to Pakistan's tunes, but we'll come to China a little later. Mm -hmm. But uh, beyond the geopolitical dimension, economically too, uh, India is uh, 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 arm twisting Pakistan in every way possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Pakistan is already, as we mentioned, very close to being bankrupt and in consultations <laughs> with the IMF mm -hmm. for a bailout. Uh, mm -hmm. It should be remembered that last year, uh, India succeeded in conven convincing uh, FATF uh, and uh, they managed to put uh, Pakistan into the so-called uh, grey list for mm -hmm. uh, terror, terror financing. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, that was a story of legends where uh, Pakistan came out uh, came out of the room and uh, they spoke to the Pakistani media uh, and uh, said that India could not manage to uh, push them into the grey list. But uh, India managed to lobby using the very same video clipping, showed it to uh, Mexico, showed it to uh, Turkey and also to uh, China. And the very next morning, uh, mind you, the plenary was not complete. So the very next morning, India managed to uh, get a vote again on uh, uh, Pakistan being pushed into grey list and this time China had absolutely no objection 
uh, and the icing on the cake was Turkey and China. Both of them agreed that uh, Pakistan would have to be pushed into the grey list. So yeah, that was a story coming in from last year. And uh, as a direct result of this, FATF asked uh, Pakistan to take verifiable steps in a time-bound fashion uh, to stop funding uh, terror groups and terror in individuals. Now, uh, the time-bound, uh, uh, the time given to Pakistan is almost up now. And the next plenary is in the coming week, where Pakistan's progress will be verified. Uh, FATF, uh, FATF agents have, had already come to Pakistan. They had verified uh, the banking sector. They had verified how uh, the terror groups were operating or had been controlled. And uh, they have gone back and provided their own reports. But uh, India can definitely make use of uh, the findings from the investigation into the Pulwama attack and mm -hmm. uh, convince the world that uh, it is not right to pull Pakistan out of the grey list. Rather, uh, India can still uh, convince the world that uh, in, uh, this is a, a fit case to push Pakistan into the blacklist. And if, if uh, India manages to do that, India succeed Pakistan into the blacklist, uh, IMF bailout would be a dream for Pakistan. So uh, but, uh, there, would, so, there would be no way that uh, IMF would agree for a bailout in that mm -hmm. situation. Now, question here is that the upcoming week's meeting, is it to simply decide if Pakistan is in the grey list or not? Or could there be also being pushed into the blacklist in the coming week or that would be at a much later stage? No, it is actually a three-step process. So uh, uh, first step being the plenary this week, wherein they would just verify uh, if Pakistan has met all the... Uh, I, I believe there are about 57 requirements. So uh, mm -hmm. Pakistan claims that they have adhered to each one of them. So <laughs> okay. uh, uh, India will have to... Uh, really, uh, really go through each one of them and tell how uh, Pakistan has uh, managed to fool everyone. Uh, so yeah, that's how it is. But the second and the third steps are much later, sometime in May and June. So mm -hmm. uh, Pakistan cannot effectively get out of the grey list within one week. It will mm -hmm. still take mm -hmm. time. So it won't but go to the blacklist right away, but it will at least stay in the no, grey list. I, no, I, I'm saying the other. I'm saying the other way around. Pakistan cannot get out of grey list immediately, but uh, India can uh, start hectic lobbying and hectic parlaying to push Pakistan into the blacklist. So yeah, yeah. Uh, come come next time in uh, uh, May when the plenary mm -hmm. uh, uh, convenes again, uh, there would be a possibility that Pakistan can get into the blacklist. Yeah, that's what I said. Like, so this is just a decision on the grey list, and nothing. The blacklist will be at a later time. Okay. Good, good right. Yeah. So uh, that was uh, one aspect uh, economically. But then the other one is one where uh, there has been maximum media coverage within India of uh, India revoking the most favored nation status. Now, this had been a carrot uh, 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 which uh, India had been uh, threatening uh, uh, to use the stick, telling uh, you behave well, we'll continue with the MFN status you do not behave well, we'll uh, take it back. Uh, not, that, not that it would uh, have any major impact on uh, the bilateral trade, but uh, anyway, be that as it may, India has now decided that it would uh, revoke the MFN status. 
Now, in addition, uh, India has also imposed a 200% customs duty on all Pakistani exports to India. Now, mind you, uh, Pakistani generals and the Pakistani army uh, members, they run a very, very lucrative and profitable uh, cement industry business. And uh, they uh, their uh, cement industry has a lot of export uh, going on. And most of it come, uh, is exported to South Asian region itself. So with 200% uh, customs duty imposed, now that would uh, imply that uh, Indian uh, India would not find uh, Pakistani cement to be any cheaper than the cement available mm -hmm. within the country. So that would be a death knell to the cement industry. And uh, it's not it's not like uh, the poor laborers or the poor industrialists in Pakistan are running this industry. It is actually the generals and the army which are actually running it. Yeah. The Pakistani yeah, army so, runs everything, man. They run from, it's not only cement, they even run like... Uh, hotel uh, business. No, hotel businesses, they even manufacture into bread making business. And uh, I mean, soap, I mean, who the hell, which army in the world tell me like, except Pakistan army is into soap making business. I mean, they're just into everything and they practically bleed the Pakistani economy with that, you know. That That is why everybody tells that... Uh, uh, in every other state, the state would have an army, but uh, in case of Pakistan, the army has a state. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, so that is with regards to uh, trade, but uh, moving beyond trade, diplomatically also, India can uh, 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 think about scaling down its ties uh, in a step-by-step -step fashion. Non-essential staff can be asked to go back in the first uh, in the first step and uh, also the defense attache in uh, Pakistan's uh, High Commissioner's Office in New Delhi can also be asked to go back because there have been enough uh, rumors and enough stories from earlier telling that the defense attache himself had been involved in espionage activities in uh, New Delhi. So this would be an opportune moment for India to scale down its ties. And uh, mind you, even if uh, India does it, uh, Pakistan would reciprocate uh, in the same fashion but uh, india would not lose much if that happens but uh, it would be a big blow for pakistan because they would uh, they would not have access to uh, huriyat anymore they would not have access to their uh, uh, supporting elements within india so that way i think india can uh, think about uh, controlling the access that was available available for them all along now, uh, beyond the diplomatic uh, realm, geographically also India holds an advantage in terms of the uh, Indus Water Treaty. And uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about uh, how it works. For example, people uh, were very, very active on social media uh, on the evening of the Pulwama attacks, uh, telling that uh, India should stop uh, and should stop letting water out from Indus River. For anybody who has seen uh, Indus, even in uh, Ladakh, it is, a, it is a humongously large water body. So anybody saying that uh, you have a switch on, switch off button to stop water going into Pakistan, you <laughs> are, you, there cannot be a bigger fool than you. Uh, so the only way out is for India to build more and more dams, more and more mm -hmm. storage capacity to make sure mm -hmm. that not only across uh, the Indus River, 
but also across the other tributaries that flow into uh, Indus. Mm -hmm. And uh, each across each one of these uh, rivers, uh, India can build uh, dams and storage capacities. Um, even even without uh, violating any provisions of the mm -hmm. Indus Water mm -hmm. Treaty. For example, there are three eastern rivers, uh, Ravi, Bias, and uh, Hatlaj, mm -hmm. uh, which have been technically given to India, but India cannot use them completely. Uh, mm -hmm. And even even with that ratio, uh, India has not fully utilized uh, its quota. And uh, there are uh, three western rivers also, like uh, uh, Indus, Chenab, and Jhelum, which have been completely given to Pakistan, which implies that India cannot uh cannot cut down on the flow of the water india cannot uh, india can only use it in a non-consumptive manner so whatever mm -hmm. water you take out of it has to be mm -hmm. uh, replenished back so uh, these are the uh, six various uh, rivers and india has been uh, uh, building dams on these on a war footing starting uh, 2014 uh, just uh, just one or two days before the uh, Pulwama attack, there was a uh, article saying that uh, India was about to sanction uh, and uh, start of work on uh, the Uj multipurpose uh, project. Mind you, Uj is a river in the Jammu division in, uh, in the southern part of the Jammu and Kashmir state and uh, any water held in that Uj river can then be used uh, for uh, agriculture in uh, Jammu division and also Punjab and Haryana and uh, Indian government believes that if there is excess water uh, beyond uh, uh, planned uh, limits they can even consider uh, directing that water into water starved uh, state of uh, Rajasthan. So uh, Uj uh, multipurpose project as I told you is not just for uh, agricultural purposes but uh, it, uh, it is also planned uh, to generate 200 megawatts of power. So this is just one example of how uh, India has been uh, uh, going ahead with uh, building of uh, dams across yeah. these rivers. And also it's a not a dam. I mean, I forget the name, but there was a canal in Rajasthan uh, or like, correct me if I'm wrong, where the there was leakage of water, which used to mean like free water for the... Farmers Pakistan, in Pakistan, yeah. the, and then the natural the slope. Yeah, the natural slope of the of the region there uh, would imply that the water would flow into Pakistan. Now mm -hmm. that has been plugged. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The the, the barrage was plugged. So many times it's like small things like these, which this government has undertaken over the like. I mean, there's a lot of you can criticize the government for a lot of things, but there are also a lot of small things which the government has done to uh, secure India's interests. But obviously, it doesn't make the nine o'clock news because I mean, who would care about a small barrage getting fixed, which would give unintended water to Pakistani farmers? And they already been facing some irrigation issues uh, after Agreed. this uh, leakage was plugged. And yes. then also and on the water also, is mm -hmm. sorry, yeah, and also in uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the Indus River in uh, the Pakistani province of uh, Sindh, uh, mm -hmm. just before joining the Arabian Sea. Uh, mm -hmm. Indus actually splits into multiple uh, multiple smaller uh, rivers mm -hmm. and uh, one branch of the river has now uh, started entering into Gujarat, uh, mm -hmm. into Kutch and uh, empties into uh, Arabian Sea from mm -hmm. inside uh, Kutch. 
so mm-hmm. again uh, uh, gujarat and rajasthan can uh, then become uh, uh, can then be provided with water coming in from the indus river so all the har uh, all the har projects that the that the local government have started already uh, uh, working on and uh, that how india has been planning to uh, checkmate pakistan when it comes to the iwt and also okay. don't forget there's also yeah. the other side of pakistan afghanistan so india has been funding a dam near kabul on i believe right. with the, the kabul river where they're going to be using like i think the dam will hold like 146 million cubic meters of water like which will give water for their 2 million kabul residents and will irrigate 4000 hectares of land now the pakistanis fear that there could be like a 15% drop in water uh if like the this water then comes to uh, pakistan like it will be blocked by the afghanis so there is like a multidimensional geopolitical game being played even in terms of water it's not only the building dams in india uh where you could speed up now the problem is that let's say a lot of these uh, projects were back on hold and the government like fast track them but a dam cannot be built overnight so some of these things will take time and people have to be patient in this domain the water domain that it's not going to happen overnight but you could also start projects let's say in afghanistan for the dam which will i mean they have a severe water shortage so they could help them and also will hurt like pakistan i mean just talking about the water from a different dimension here exactly now surprisingly though while indian had dismissive about this kind of uh, work being carried out now the uh, the terror organization within pakistan the the hayat halahuddin and masood ahar now these people when they address political or public rallies within pakistan they keep uh, harboring harping on this topic saying that uh, the government in india is Uh, playing with water, and uh, there can be a uh, there can be a time in the future when India can use water as a, a weapon to uh, flood uh, the uh, Indus plain within uh, Pakistan. And uh, this way, the terror groups have been able to instill some kind of fear within the, the average Pakistani uh, who is dependent on agriculture out there. So yeah, while so they are have, claiming uh, so. Plans. So they are claiming that we will flood their plains. Yeah. So the thing is that we, uh, everybody knows that we plan to cut down on the amount of water going into the Indus uh-huh. yeah. uh, River. Now there can be a situation where either due to excessive flood or due to excessive rainfall, uh, mm-hmm. we might have to open open up the dam gates, the sluice mm-hmm. gates, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that would result in uh, more water than usual. <laughs> just like how. just like how uh, china does with uh, the brahmaputra in in the northeast now yeah. uh, uh, these these uh, ter- terror uh, organizations use the same uh, charge and uh, claim that india plans to use it as a water bomb that's the exact <laughs> terminology that the, they i mean the i mean i don't i'm not like uh, i'm not trying to laugh at somebody's problem like when a lot of water gets rushed in i mean that happens with any river like even within india or like pakistan that would be the same case the reason i am particularly laughing is during uh, i mean if you remember during operation parakram like the massive build up of forces post the attack i mean there was a serious uh, threat that india would just like uh, go across the international border now at that time 
Pakistan feared a huge mechanized assault across the border. So what they did to counter us was they flooded all the rivers, canals and stuff, which would make it very hard for Indians to progress or slow down their progress. Uh, so that's why I was laughing that like they, they when they are in trouble or when they sense a huge invasion coming across the border, it's their MO where they fl themselves flood their fields and I mean, they will cause mayhem and destruction. So, I mean, they keep easily forget what happened in 2001 and they are like now trying to tell us that we are doing this. So, narrative so. war, I tell you, narrative war. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so quickly moving on, uh, we have spoken uh, at great length about uh, Pakistan uh, itself as uh, the perpetrator in this particular terror attack. But we should remember that amidst all this, India had always tried in the United Nations Security Council to get uh, Jaisi Muhammad and uh, Masood Azhar blacklisted. But uh, China had managed to veto each time, uh, indicating that uh, there was not enough uh, consensus uh, within the Security Council members uh, to take that kind of uh, uh, action on uh, Masood Azhar. Now, when they said that there was no consensus, uh, people would laugh at China simply because China was the only country which was uh, uh, vetoing this, whereas all the other four permanent members and the ten non-permanent members uh, would agree with uh, India's position. So China simply being uh, where it is as a permanent member is misusing its veto each, each time. And therefore uh, it is right to say this time around that China too, uh, similar to Pakistan, has blood on its hands. In fact, uh, the Chinese ambassador to India uh, did not did not come out with any public statement condemning the attack. Uh, however, after a public uproar, uh, eventually the embassy uh, climbed down and issued a, a statement. But even that statement ended up to be a very very uh, weak statement, uh, wherein neither did they uh, neither did they mention Pakistan nor did they mention uh, cross-border terrorism or any such uh, terminology. So eventually it was just a weak statement. So uh, India India would be uh, India would be right if uh, they go ahead and uh, target China as well, saying mm -hmm. that uh, your, your wrong steps at the right time has actually led to all this. So India might actually mm -hmm. uh, not only not only continue uh, applying uh, isolation strategy on Pakistan, but this time around India as an option might actually start doing it on China as well. And mm -hmm. uh, it might actually go uh, uh, go go tom-toming to the whole world and especially to the various Belt and Road Initiative countries saying that uh, if China can do this to Pakistan, uh, obviously they can do uh, the same thing to you as well. So that is one more strategy that uh, India might uh, adopt. Yeah, I think uh, one more thing we need to see is like, usually like when such attacks happen, there's usually the wave of condemnation against or anger against Pakistan. I think what has been a refreshing change this time around, both from the security analysts or the foreign policy experts and also many in the common, uh, many of the common people, the common folks, is that uh, there has been a lot of anger directed towards China, a blame and anger. 
which has not been the case before. I mean, I'll tell you an example. Like, uh, I got a message on WhatsApp forwarded like uh, that the Indian community in the Northern California or the Bay Area, as we as they call it, like was mm-hmm. going to protest in front of the Chinese consulate in San Francisco. So mm-hmm. this is one of the, I mean, small examples that I think people might have already given up on Pakistan because they know it's a failed state and not much can be done there. But I think the pressure needs to be now brought on China that they cannot be abating a state which is a state sponsored, which sponsors state terrorism. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so uh, and then uh, one more on the Masood Azhar point. I think mm-hmm. I saw something in the media where China is thinking uh, hard over it. It might not mean that they might really want to protect their interests and not still uh, classify Masood Azhar as a, a terrorist. But there is a small sliver of hope in some people's mind in India that they might just throw them under the bus like they did with the FATF. And say, you know what, mm-hmm. this is just way too much for even us to handle and <laughs> declare Masood Azhar as a terrorist, you know. And that's what the Indian government wants, and uh, good if it happens that way. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So uh, that was with regards to the international dimension. But politically within India, uh, there was an all party meet, and uh, the all party meet issued a statement which in itself was uh, very, very weak. And that uh, was. Uh, widely condemned by uh, common people. Now, uh, what happened was that the all-party uh, all-party statement itself did not uh, name Pakistan, and uh, uh, that was a golden opportunity to uh, uh, to give a clear-cut mandate to the government of the day to uh, to take any any decision they found wise. But somehow, uh, uh, the statement. Uh, stopped short of naming Pakistan and just said across the border. And we have been we have been guilty of using the phrase across the border for a long, long time now. And uh, I think uh, we have to stop using that phrase and uh, use and name Pakistan and shame Pakistan whenever uh, the situation arises. So yeah, that was with regard yeah, to I mean, all the, the various uh, the, dimensions. Uh, yeah, the understatement, uh, the you said like it was a weak statement, is a uh, massive understatement. That was uh, <laughs> almost like a statement given by a foreign country who didn't want to meddle in India's affairs. So exactly. that's sort of yeah, the yeah. sad state of affairs. I mean, uh, I mean, foreign countries might be hesitant, but like, how can you guys not be more vocal in your condemnation? Also, one more Absolutely. angle I wanted to explore with you, Kishore. So let's yeah. say, I mean, this sort of hypothetical Iran-India attack happens maybe jointly or separately. Would it complicate stuff because that because Iran, is, as you know, is a, like a Shia country and then Pakistan is supported by it. But I think UAE gave $6 billion and Saudi Arabia is going to give $8 billion or something like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. would that cause like a friction between the, the, the Sunni lobby in UAE, Saudi Arabia and India if it comes to like a joint strike? I don't know. I mean... What are your thoughts? Yeah, it would be, and uh, simply because there there are already enough uh, uh, Shia Sunni conflict uh, hot hot spots around the world, including Yemen mm-hmm. and Syria and Iraq and uh, all these places. So uh, opening up another front would be uh, something that uh, both uh, Saudi Alliance and uh, Iran would quite would be quite wary of, especially because uh, uh, Saudi is 
in the limelight recently because of uh, the journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Mm-hmm. And uh, Iran is uh, again being subjected to sanctions uh, mm-hmm. from the US. Now, uh, all, all, uh, all uh, resources of Iran have been used up in, uh, in uh, convincing the European Union to stay put in the, in the nuclear deal that they So Iran continues to uh, engage with the European Union while at the same time threatening Israel in, in a different conflict altogether mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. Uh, of another uh, of India's uh, friends by the way one another of yeah exactly so again so, uh, opening so a up joint operation front, yeah so a joint operation obviously won't be practical but maybe like a staggered operation they hit them one day and then we hit them maybe later on just to avoid the perception of that Pakistan a Sunni state was hit by a Shia state, Iran on one side and India jointly. So India is with the Iran and against exactly, Sunni. Exactly. So, uh-huh. so in addition, in addition, uh, I think I think what can happen or what can be done is that uh, it can be agreed that Iran would just impose a one one single attack and uh, mm-hmm. be done with it, just like how India did with the mm-hmm. yeah yeah. But and like a staggered then, thing, not like of, uh, not at the same time. A staggered thing, basically. Uh, not at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So just to indicate that, uh, indicate that uh, uh, Iran has taken uh, has taken countermeasures, appropriate uh, uh, on them, whereas India would take a larger countermeasure appropriate to the mm-hmm. damage yeah. inflicted on them. All mm-hmm. all in a staggered fashion, uh, fashion as you indicated. So I think that may be something that uh, we can uh, see in the foreseeable future. Okay. Yeah, I agree there. Oh, okay. So that, uh, dear listeners, wraps up to uh, our discussion today on uh, the Pulwama terror attack, how it happened, uh, the various uh, people behind it, and uh, how, how can India's response be in uh, in this time and uh, uh, in this time and age. So to continue uh, hearing about such interesting topics, uh, do subscribe to our channel India Rising and also tap on the bell icon on YouTube to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. Uh, again, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we are now available on SoundCloud and on every other podcast platform. So you can decide where to hear uh, India Rising. In addition, we would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like us to cover. Do remember that these topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next episode, thank you very much. And in memory of the slain paramilitary uh, soldiers, Om Shanti.